Money Sense is brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group, four-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau Torch Award for business ethics and integrity. Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com and listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just north of I-94 between 164 and Highway F in our new location in the Ridgeview Corporate Park. We're also in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building across from Winkies. We also service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. Today, we have a very special guest, Dick Schiller. Dick comes to us from a partner firm that we look to to manage our fixed income portfolios, Pavlik Investment Advisor. Uh, Dick and his uh, father-in-law, Terry, have been serving our clients and building bond ladders using investment-grade corporate bonds now for several years. And Dick is also a chartered financial analyst as well as a CPA and has had uh, an extensive experience in uh, credit and investment grade bond an analytics for a number of years. Welcome to the show, Dick. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. Great to be here again. You're more than welcome. You've been a busy man. It has been busy. No shortage of, uh, of surprises. And uh, boy, not a lot of people had in their year-end outlook that 2023 would shape out to be how it's turned out. But you know, here we are halfway through the year. When we had you on the show a few months back, there was a lot going on with not only interest rates, but also the regional banks, Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, was probably the leading there with a few of the others. Uh, I want to get into that, but you know, I thought before we jump in, it would be great to hear a little bit more about you, your background. What made you decide to get into uh, this this profession? Yeah, certainly. So I I was fortunate to know that pretty at a, at a young age, I'd say high school, that I knew I wanted to be in business. I really wasn't sure what in business, but I. I loved investing from from a young age. I was I, was, I remember watching Kramer and uh, talking to my dad about what he thought about what he was saying. And does this guy know what he's talking about, or is he just a, a marketer? And he's a hell of a marketer. I give him that. Mm -hmm. uh, bye bye bye. Sell sell sell. I remember you know seventh eighth grade. That would be what I'd be uh, tuning in and listening to. So maybe that was a little bit of my geeky side back then. Um, but took an accounting class uh, in in high school actually, and that really prolonged the the path for me to go to a U of I in Urbana-Champaign and, and major in accounting and finance. Uh, the accounting part, I really wanted to know how businesses worked, how the financial statements uh, really ran to, to really judge the health of a business. And then the finance uh, aspect, I thought was investments were just super fascinating. Um, you know, I was, I was joking with Terry actually this weekend, we were talking about uh, doctors and how in their line of work, you know, you can't be wrong. You, you a mm -hmm. doctor has to be right 100% of the time, and if they're not, they have some pretty serious issues. And in this business, you you have to be right about 60% of the time, and you'll be a hell of a good investor. Uh, but that also means that you're you're wrong 40% of the time. So um, that you know, it's it's kind of like it's a humbling business, right? No one knows exactly what to expect. Uh, but that's what really kind of intrigued me. Like, can we figure this out? How do how do we you know structure portfolios and and uh, take care of people's money to to the best uh, at the end of the day the best return versus uh, expected risk? Um, but so that's you know I, I knew I wanted to be in this path. Went to U of I, uh, majored in accounting and finance, and and I when I graduated it was 2008. So the 
I don't know if people remember that time, but it was a great financial crisis. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah, tough time uh, in the investment space. I'm like, boy, did I make the wrong decision? I should have been an architect or a doctor or a lawyer or something. But uh, stuck it out, started at, at KPMG in their financial services uh, group, really attestation work. So doing uh, financial due diligence reports for the buyers, private equity firms looking to buy a company and and basically giving them what's a normalized level of cash flow that they should base their valuations on uh, and really learn the intricacies of both M&A but also how to value businesses. And that's what turned me on to, okay, you know, I really like this, but I want to be the ones buying or selling the businesses. Or, you know, I, 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 was, I was really a consultant advising private equity firms on, on what to buy or sell, how to base their valuations. And I said, well, I want to sit on the table that's actually doing the buying and selling. So that's what got me down the road of uh, the CFA, uh, studying for that. That was uh, a four-year process for me because I, I did have a fail uh, of an exam in there. It was once a year. Sure. There's when, a good runway there. Yeah, There's exactly. a lot going on with that exam for sure. Exactly. So I started that um, and then you know, made my way through a few different uh, firms and, and find myself today at Pavlik Investment Advisors, really focused on exactly where I want to be, uh, you know, equity analysis, bond analysis, credit analysis. And um, it, it's a it's a really fun and, and rewarding job because we're, 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 people are entrusting us with, with their money. Um, and, and we're really trying to do our absolute best to, to you know, mitigate risk, but also make a return. Sure. Um, you know, we're not, we're not just buying U.S. Treasury bills, um, even though they're making a heck of a return. So we actually are buying a little bit of money market fund uh, for for clients, but uh, from from the bond side, we're trying to make an excess of of those risk free returns, and and that's what we're doing. And um, you know, it's, it's been a, a really good run and a, and a fun fun experience thus far. That's fantastic. Family firm, get to get to work with your father in law. Exactly. So you know, my my boss, my partner uh, is my father in law, Terry Pavlik. Uh, I'm lucky enough to to be married to his middle daughter, uh, Madeline. And uh, we have two two beautiful kids at home. One of which is one week old. So if I if I sound a little funny, <laughs> thank you so much for making this uh, work. I, I I tend to uh, I, I'm the overnight shift guy, so I'm given the bottle uh, overnight. So if there you I'm, go. If I sound a little funny, that's why. Excuse that's me. awesome. Thank you so much. That is great. And you know the the process and path that you went through to hands on, you know, learn exactly what it was that you want to do is also fascinating and. We're glad that uh, you ended up here in southeastern Wisconsin and uh, everything that your firm has done in terms of, you know, managing the fixed income sleeves of certain portfolios that we offer through EIG has been a very good, very good uh, partnership. So yeah, we appreciate that. It's been a great partnership. It goes back to, to Terry and, and Karen Ellen Becker, really, and this is dated a well before my time, uh, and I came a little bit later, and it was just apparent how strong that partnership was. And we really, we really see the portfolios and value clients' money and value clients in the same way. And so that I think makes the relationship uh, work work very well. And um, yeah, it's probably been seven or eight years now we've been mm -hmm. in partnership together. So. That's right. So before when we got together back in March, uh, there was a lot going on at that point in time. Obviously, coming off of twenty twenty two. Uh, you know, a, a difficult year for a lot of investors. We saw not only the equity market, you know, r really, you know, take a hit, but also the fixed income market. Uh, in March, also at that point in time, we started to see some weakness in certain sectors. One in particular were the financials. 
and specifically the regional banks with Silicon Valley Bank and a number of others in that, that, uh, that group there. Um, what would you say from where we were then to now? Is there any major change? What, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, definitely. So the last quarter we had uh, the same radio show. We, we were in the thick of it because this started uh, really in, in mid to late March, and we were probably doing our recording in, in April. So we were all kind of holding our breath there. And then uh, what, what it, probably to a surprise to most, probably myself included, was that it really kind of went away. And it, it just hasn't been we, – we, we lost the second, third, and fourth largest bank since the great financial crisis – uh, was was we lost the the largest bank, but those are major major large bank failures for them to happen one after another, and then all of a sudden it got kind of quiet. And what happened? We talked about this in the last podcast, but the Fed really stepped in yet again. Um, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to call it a, a bailout, but they did guarantee uh, the loans of all depositors, so no one no one was rushing. The, the panic stopped there. No one was rushing to to really. You know, be like, is is my no? Everyone was made whole, especially mm-hmm. the depositors. Um, uh, and then on the equity side, you know, the equity and bondholders were were not made whole. Um, so that's that's why I fall. I call it. It, it should be held um, back from a a bailout. But um, you know, the the acquiring banks, however, J.P. Morgan um, acquiring First Republic, uh, First Citizens. You know, you, you you pull up a stock chart of First Citizens and some of these banks that made the acquisitions. Did, it ultimately ended up making out very, very well. And I think why is that? It's the, the loan book at the bank's balance sheet was still good. This wasn't a crisis of bad loans like it was in 2008. This was really a crisis of, a crisis of deposit flight. And you know, if you have a stable bank like J.P. Morgan, for instance, that, that makes the purchase, well, there's not that deposit flight. So they got this really good loan book at a discount. Um, and that's where we're, we're going to see, too, and with earnings here uh, upcoming, just how strong, you know, that if they can buy things at 85 cents or 90 cents on the dollar, you know, they can mark it up. And now they have the stability of without the deposit flight. That's a pretty good position to be in. So I would say they've really made out well. But, um, you know, we're our position is we're still cautious about the regional bank uh, industry because of just how quickly and overnight there are these runs on the banks happen, right? People are, are pulling money out with, with a cell phone, uh, and they're not going to a bank teller waiting in line like how they might have done in the olden days. So, um, you know, if, when we're running investment-grade bond screens, the top 10 bonds are different issuers that are all investment-grade. Now, Moody's S&P has them rated investment-grade, but we're still hesitant because, you know, SVB Bank was also investment-grade, mm-hmm. right? First Republic was also investment-grade, uh, and, and they they went under very very quickly. Very quickly. So, yep. um, you know, and so quickly to the to the point where we really didn't have a window of opportunity to get out. So that that scares us uh, away from from adding to any new regional banking position. So it's, do we have some regional banking position exposure within the EIG portfolio? We do, but it's extremely small, uh, less than zero point five percent, and we're not actively adding on mm-hmm. there. So. Uh, but that's a, a little bit about positioning uh, for us currently. Thank you. Yeah, we're meeting with Dick Schiller from Pavlik Investment Advisors. Dick is our fixed income specialist. We're going to take a break here in a minute, but i um, curious to talk to you a little bit about the interest rate environment, where we're at in the yield curve, uh, how you may see some of those things play out, not only from the standpoint of 
investing, but also just the general inf- interest rate environment. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Money Sense. Our guest today is Dick Schiller, fixed income strategist with Pavlik Investment Advisors. Dick is a chartered financial analyst. We got to learn a little bit about his background before the break. Uh, before the break, we were also talking about fixed income, how things are lining up right now. Uh, so as we've kind of talked through you know, where we were earlier this year, uh, if you were to put out there to somebody a 10-year ladder with new money, what would that look like right now for bond investors? Yeah, sure. That's that's a great question. And you know, we, our, our strategy is to hold bonds to maturity. So every year we actually have a maturity coming due or we can redeploy that capital uh, at the end of the ladder, provided the client doesn't need it for a distribution. But that's the biggest question is what rate of return are we redeploying that capital at? And if a bond comes due in 2023 and we're redeploying it at, at the end of the ladder, either 2032 or 2033, uh, that, that rate has been over 6%, sometimes in excess of 6.5% uh, for what, what we feel uh, not taking on extensive risks, names such as General Motors or um, you know, VF Corp, uh, you know, clothing provider. So, you know, there, there's a lot of return at six and a half percent. You know, bonds are not the place to be where the benefit was. This lowers my overall portfolio volatility from stocks. This is the stable part. Uh, now it's like we can actually make money. Um, I'm maybe a little bit hesitant to say people we can make people rich off it, but six percent's a, a pretty darn good return. You know, if if you're looking at at retiring and depending on the size of your nest egg. Uh, you can do some pretty quick math when you look at you know your social security income and then any other sources of passive income and you know, offset by your uh, expenses. And some people can have the math work to be, you know, I, I can live off six percent, uh, and that's pretty good. You you don't have to go degrade your principal over time. And and for me, that's that uh, feels like the sweet spot of, uh, of retirement, far mm-hmm. off for, for me, but uh, for some of my clients, it's really happy to, uh, to see them get there. Uh, but we can talk about that a little bit in the, in the next segment in, uh, in asset allocation. Uh, but it, to your question of new money, so a client comes in, you know, has, here, I have this pile of money, let's put it in your 10-year bond ladder, uh, what's my expected rate of return? And that number, similar to as if we were adding on to the end of the ladder, is also, in the low six percent range uh, and so what does that mean that the yield curve is is really elevated uh, but also fairly flat so that means that if we're buying a bond that matures in one year that's at about six percent or if we're buying a bond out for 10 years that's also at six percent and in a normal economic environment a normal structured yield curve that the short end of the curve would be lower than the higher end so You'd be buying a bond one year out for, say, 3 or 4%, and then a bond five or six years out, 5%, a bond 10 years out, 6%. So you, you have this normal slope of the yield curve. Well, right now we're flat. So uh, one of the common questions we get, Jamie, in that environment is, mm-hmm. is why, why would we want to lock our money up for 10 years when I can make 6% by locking it up for one year, by just buying the, the bond that's maturing in 6 to 12 months and and our answer is, is reinvestment rate risk, which sounds complex. But remember when, when you're actually 
buying the bond for 10 years out, that 6% is, is per year. So you're essentially locking in those cash flows for 10 years. When you're buying a bond just one year out, you know, you're locking it in for just one year. So it, what are rates one, five, 10 years from now? I'm, I'm not smart enough to know. I don't think anyone out there is. And our strategy is really <laughs> is based on, on taking advantage of the rates that the market is going to give us. Yeah, and when you look at money market rates, certificates of deposit, you know, just general cash management, we talk about that all the time as we're positioning client portfolios for, you know, short-term and long-term success. We want to make sure they have enough liquidity. We know where we're taking the funds from, but treasury money money market funds are at, you know, close to 5% right now in some cases. So, you know, you're right, you know, locking in for that longer period of time definitely has uh, a benefit and there is a case for doing that, right? So maybe counterintuitive to what people are thinking long run, but definitely allocating toward uh, intermediate, high quality corporate fixed income has its place as we'll talk about in the next segment during asset allocation discussion. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, kind of walking through some of the other sectors that come to mind right now, especially for those uh, you know, areas where there might be some concern, the thought about real estate comes to mind. And for a number of reasons, I mean, we've got, you know, we've got residential real estate, obviously, that has been very strong going into, you know, the COVID, you know, pandemic. We've seen interest rates shift dramatically on the debt side of the equation, which does provide a little bit of dampering effect, or maybe a lot of dampering effect on what people can borrow comfortably. Um, how do you view interest rates where they're at today? Uh, the Fed raised, what, 10 cycles or 10 hikes since last March. What are your thoughts on where we're going from here on that? Yeah, so starting with the Fed, yeah, you're right. We've, we've gotten up to a, a discount window. So this is the short-term rate that banks lend to each other overnight, and we're up to 5%. So that's what's driving that return on the money market funds, also near 5%. Uh, where we currently stand, it, it seems like they have said they want to get to 5.5%. The market isn't really quite there yet in believing them. Uh, they, they think we'll get to five and a quarter, uh, with a, another rate hike, 25 basis points coming in July here. Uh, but at the end of the day, five and a quarter, five and a half, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's over five. That's a, that's a very high, very restrictive rate. Um, what the Fed does have and what all Americans have in their favor is, is that the rate of CPI is coming down, at least for the headline CPI. Core remains really sticky, uh, above 4%, but the latest reading for CPI was 3.0% uh, as, as the headline when you include food and energy. Um, so that's that's promising, and that's why the market doesn't really believe the, the Fed will get to five and a half. You know, we hope that continues to, to come down. Um, and if it does, the Fed will have room to then, then lower rates. Um, and I, I still, I think the higher for longer mantra is going to be around at least for the next six months. So, you know, bringing us to the end of the year, we'll probably have something closer to 5% for that federal funds rate. I don't think, you know, rate cuts are coming anytime soon, but, um, you know, Jay Powell's made it pretty clear. He wants to make sure the job is done. Um, he is uh, a studier of the 70s and the, and the 80s. So he he knows that inflation can come back and rear its ugly head. Mm -hmm. So he, he wants to keep rates higher for longer. 
And your, you know, your your question also included other asset classes like real estate, and that's that's a prime example of a of a subsector that uses a lot of debt uh, to to finance the purchases of of assets. And I think the one thing about real estate is everyone's talking about uh, commercial real estate, and everyone people think commercial real estate, they think big high-rise downtown office buildings. And um, I think there's, it's really important to make a delineation between those high-rise office buildings that are downtown, uh, especially the ones in the big urban city centers, and, and look at all the different subsectors of, of real estate. So warehouses supporting e-commerce or cell phone towers uh, supporting uh, the, the different, um, you know, really 5G and, and sure. data movement. Uh, data centers, the same thing. Just, you know, talk about AI. I mean, those are all going through data centers. So the real estate is, is very vast, and you know, a lot of the office REITs that are publicly traded definitely are under, are under pressure, and, and rightfully so. They, they should be. Uh, but there are other areas within real estate that uh, have used debt appropriately, and they have growing uh, demand fundamentals, um, which can't be said for for offices. It's a little bit like what we saw for for malls uh, five to ten years ago, where the the demand just started really drying up. Um, and then real estate, like I said, it uses a lot of debt. So what's really really important is how is that debt structured? Mm-hmm. Is it fixed for ten years at three percent? Well, they're not going to really feel the impact of these higher rates. Or on the other token, is it floating rate debt, and which means you know that that rate of return, uh, interest costs to the REIT, uh, for example, or real estate companies is resetting every quarter. They're going to be in a world of hurt if you have demand falling and your interest costs going up substantially, resetting or floating rate debt. Uh, that's where there's going to be a lot of trouble in the market. Yeah, I'll say um, quite a number of real estate money managers out there, you know, really paying close attention to where things are going. And, you know, not only does that affect banks, but also a lot of private equity, a lot of private real estate investors. So uh, we're meeting with Dick Schiller from Pavlik Investment Advisors, and we'll be right back to Money Sense right after this short break. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams with the Ellen Becker Investment Group, Wealth Advisor. And I'm here today with our guest, Dick Schiller, who is a fixed income bond strategist with Pavlik Investment Advisors. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about the interest rate environment, yield curves, uh, you know, kind of what to expect when it comes to considering fixed income investing, which is an important area that we like to incorporate with, you know, the majority, if not most or all of our portfolios to some degree. And part of that involves the need to consider liquidity too, because, you know, with money market rates, fixed income, you know, cash equivalents, things of that nature, uh, being as high as they are, we don't really necessarily want to keep a lot of cash laying around. And even if you were to walk in your bank, I'm sure they've got a sign on the wall that says they've got a CD special, you know, that they're offering today which is a dramatically different shift from what we saw just about you know, a year ago. So Dick, welcome back. Um, you know, let's talk about that for a minute in terms of liquidity and how people should think about that and what tools they might have out there to plan for that in their portfolios. 
Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a great topic. And boy, you're, you're exactly right. It, it has changed uh, tremendously over the last year to two years. And I think about it like really the, the 2010s, right after the great financial crisis, the Fed took rates to zero and held them there. So you're talking about a decade of 0% federal funds rate, um, you know, the, the decade of free money. Uh, so it wasn't just a year ago, but it was one year to 13 years ago, a 10-year time span where really cash or nothing. Um, and it, admittedly, uh, corporate bonds, we didn't, we weren't making people rich, right? Two to 3% at, at the low point. Um, our good returns held to maturity, but that wasn't, uh, that, that's not going to really grow your portfolio uh, it's tremendously over the long term. Now that conversation is is more balanced, right? Money market funds at 5%, fixed income, new 10-year money at 6%, and stocks 9 10 11% if you include the dividend yield over the long term. And really picking out the right asset allocation, the right balance uh, between those three buckets, cash, bonds, and stocks is, is how we like to structure portfolios. And on, on the money market fund side, we, we like to think of it starting with, to your point, liquidity. So, mm-hmm. you know, work with your EIG advisor, especially if you're approaching retirement and, and thinking about this and seeing what are the inflows, what's cash coming in, whether that be Social Security, pension income, any other real estate, maybe passive income. And then what are the expenses? What's the amount of money going out the door that, that you expect? And, and round up 10, 20 percent. You know, everyone tends to underestimate their expenses, but people I've, in my experience, have seen, they, they tend to have one-time things that come up that tend to come up every two or three months. And then I have to say, hey, these aren't one-time things. These are recurring one-time things. Um, so so buffer in a little on the expense side. And, and then, you know, what that delta is, we, we want to make sure we keep it liquid. So money market funds are a great place to be uh, for that. You know, you mentioned CDs. You go out and buy a CD, you're locking up that money until that maturity date, and there are pretty large penalties if, if you want to get out of that CD uh, beforehand. And the same thing goes in investment-grade mm-hmm. bonds. When you're owning the bond, we, we want to hold the maturity because there's large transaction costs to, to sell them before maturity. So having that, that buffer of, of money market fund is, is really a great position uh, to be in. Um, and then the, the split you know, between stocks and bonds on, on the other side is, is really something to work directly with, with your EIG yeah, advisor. Yeah, that's going to be real specific, sure. But when it comes to thinking about where we're at today, I remember one of my first, you know, desk office jobs working in a bank in the late 90s. We were able to offer, you know, CDs at four. We had money market accounts, four or five percent. This is really the first time we've actually seen that, uh, resurface again in this environment. Um, I'd also like to say it's it's a case for really sitting down with your advisor, understanding what your goals are, making sure that if, you know, you know, everything might be great and there's no need to start thinking about contingency planning, but to have that emergency fund, to have perhaps maybe a home equity line of credit or something like that, a line of credit of some sort in place can really, really help uh, build that structure. But, you know, on the flip side, you're going to borrow money today and you're going to pay, right? It's I expensive, mean, right? Yeah, I yeah. feel for the people that have been on the sidelines wanting to buy a home waiting for the housing market to crash. Um, and I've heard that for a couple of years now and it just hasn't happened yet. Um, you know, Case-Shiller Index is relatively flat. 
But you know, there's I believe the statistic is like 60% of people are in the 3% mortgage rate or below, and 70% are 75% maybe are 4% uh, and below from mm-hmm. that, and then 90% are four and a half below. So if we're talking about current interest rates at 7% today, to to sell your existing home today and get out and reset your mortgage interest payment. Uh, that you're probably in a much smaller home if you want to keep your payment the same. So inventory has been so tight, so we just haven't seen the prices fall. Absolutely. So, yeah, very good. So today we're meeting with Dick Schiller from Pavlik Investment Advisors. He's a fixed income strategist and knows the markets really well. He's a CFA, Charter Financial Analyst, and a partner to EIG. Um, so, yeah, we, we've covered a lot here. You know, one thing that uh, we, we touched on earlier was real estate and in particular um, that area there's strengths and there's weaknesses right Um, but what are some other sectors that come to mind for you right now that are either doing extremely well or that there might be a question mark next to yeah it's a a great question Um, and I wish we had a crystal ball but I'll start with just looking back and reviewing over the last six months, uh, and particularly in the equity markets, uh, I don't know if anyone on the show has ever heard of AI or artificial intelligence. I'm sure a few of us sure have. Yeah, people have. Boy, <laughs> it's it seemed like you know inflation, interest rates were the buzzwords, uh, which are are more tied to fixed income. And I'm a little bit off the hot seat now because artificial intelligence is uh, are the new buzzwords of this first half of the year. Uh, but that really propelled technology uh, on the equity side. In the, in the first half of the year, the the market breadth was was pretty poor, and what that means is you have a very small number of stocks that are driving the majority of the returns. Um, you know, at, at some point uh, in June, it was actually seven stocks that you know they call them the Magnificent Seven. People probably know what they are. It's it's the Fang stocks: Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and now we've added Nvidia uh, and Tesla to those. Uh, to those letters, so it, it tends to change every six to twelve months. But regardless, mm-hmm. the majority of the of the power of the index has been from these large and predominantly tech technology focused uh, stocks. So good and bad. It's great if you own some of those names. It's great if you own the overall index and you've been benefiting from that because they are such large holders of the index. Uh, the the bad news is the other 95% of your portfolio, or the other 95%, hopefully not your portfolio, but the other 95% of the companies out there by count, the other 493 of the S&P 500 companies, mm-hmm. on an average basis are close to break even, you know, up maybe 1%, 2 3% uh, from a median standpoint. So that... I, the bad news is they haven't participated. The good news is I think that's that's where to be searching for opportunities, right? I, you always want to be focused on where that puck is going versus maybe where it's been. And the it, it's very clear there is some, I don't, I'm not ready to call it a bubble, especially with some of uh, the high cash flowing names, but there's rich valuations uh, in technology mm-hmm. and there there are some some really interesting opportunities uh, elsewhere in the space. Yeah, Dick. So one of the things that we, you know, obviously have, uh, you know, comes into play. We're talking about growth-oriented companies. The the seven that you mentioned earlier. Um, where do you find value, kind of coming into the picture here for us currently and as we move forward? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. So 
you rewind 2022 with a rising rate environment, and we're still in a higher for longer rising rate environment, just isn't the rates aren't rising as much. But the, uh, the, the story of last year was falling tech valuations, falling stock market valuations in general, and growth names tend to have higher valuation multiples. And those were all reset lower, uh, punished pretty hard throughout the year. And the value names were relatively flat. 2023 has been the complete opposite. It was as, as if someone rang the New Year's Eve bell and, uh, you know, we, we, we completely, the river turned from going one direction to the other, uh, where value has been relatively flat this year and growth names have been significantly uh, outperforming. Uh, so that the good and bad, right, is that that does leave you some windows of opportunity, I think, with the other remaining 493 S&P 500 companies that haven't fully participated um, but there is economic uncertainty out there, and that remains. And I think that's why people gravitated back towards some of those growth names is that, you know, people expect Microsoft, people expect Apple to keep selling iPhones. You know, the, they're going to release a new one in September, and I'm sure it will generate a ton of buzz, right? right. And on the Microsoft, people are going to continue to pay for Office 365. We couldn't run our business without it. If they wanted to increase price 10%, I would pay it happily. I'd pay it if they increased it 20%, right? It's necessary to our business. So... Um, they're they're in really good positions, but they're expensive. So that's we're we're at a, an inflection point today where we have to determine: do you chase the expensive stuff, uh, the expensive names out there, or do you look for value in some of the more beaten up areas of the market? Great. We're meeting with Dick Schiller, fixed income strategist with Pavlik Investment Advisors, and uh, today we're talking about kind of a market update. We're going through a number of different things that are important for people to be considering um, as we're working our way already halfway through this crazy year, right? Uh, things a little bit more stable than we obviously experienced for all of last year. Uh, September uh, was kind of like the second, you know, beginning of the second bottoming of uh, the S&P. Uh, like you said, get into January and things are looking much different into this year. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, some things that people might be thinking about around volatility, and then how it factors into their personal planning for their retirement portfolios. Thank you. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group, and I'm here today with Dick Schiller, our fixed income strategist for the Pavlik Investment Advisor bond portfolios that we manage for our clients. And before the break, we were talking about the uh, certain aspects of the market, you know, um, themes in terms of how growth is done. We talked about technology, real estate, a few of the probably highlights to the market this year. Um, generally speaking, through the second quarter, stocks were up about 16.9% in the S&P 500 as a whole. Lots of positive momentum. Um, with that being the case, I mean, statistically, stocks have continued to typically do better. There's obviously no, no guarantee for that. But uh, what are you finding right now? Because we are in a very low... Uh, market in terms of volatility. What are your thoughts right now on valuations and uh, yeah, things are? that's exactly right. The the VIX I, I think it's around thirteen fourteen. You know near almost almost eerie lows. Um, and what 
what I like to think about is some of the, the even the client calls and the cues we've gotten in the last quarter have been asking us, well, are, are you invested in AI? How, how much money are we making in AI? Like we need to buy, buy, buy. And if you rewind back to you know the fourth quarter of last year, every single phone call was, you know, get me out, protect my money, protect my assets, and you know, we can't be taking any risk. And it's they, they have the, the AI, uh, not artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but the the AAII investor confidence uh, numbers, and it's just an amazing contrarian indicator. And at the end of the day, it really boils down to when. When people are bullish, it's time to get a little cautious. And when there's blood in the streets, it's time to be greedy, right? Mm-hmm. That, that Warren Buffett line, be yeah. greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And uh, it definitely feels that to some extent that there's a little bit of, of greed out there. Um, even a you know, a 5 10% pullback in the equity markets is really should should be expected. We, we normally get a, a pullback of that magnitude once every year, and it hasn't shown up this year. So... Um, if, if I were to, to bet, I would think that we would feel that 5 to 10% pullback at some point in the second half uh, of the year in stocks. I, I think the, the key is really to, to take a step back and, and look at returns over the three, five-year, 10-year period. And, and when you can, can zoom out, you really mm-hmm. just see you know, the long-term value creation of stocks and, and how bonds play into that as well. And um, that's when it's just so important to, to stick to your asset allocation, to stick to your investment plan, to, to not really freak out. We, you know, last year there wasn't much rebalancing to do between stocks and bonds because, honestly, they both struggled a little bit. Right. Right? Your long-dated bonds might have been down 15 20%, and your stocks were down 20%. So there wasn't much, you know, sell one, buy the other, right? It was they're, they're, they're both in trouble. Um, and, and right now, we, we've had an environment where stocks have rallied and, and bonds have stayed relatively flat. We've collected our our coupon payments and, and pricing mm-hmm. hasn't gotten worse, which I think is really important. So if there's any rebalancing to do, you know, it might be, let's, especially if you have some of the really high flyer artificial intelligence names, you know, maybe we trim a little bit back there and we buy a bond. We lock in 6%. And, uh, you know, how far up the maturity ladder we go really depends on the client's liquidity needs. For sure. Yeah, I read that uh, volatility is eased to the aspect or level that movements in the market of greater or less than 2% for this year total, we've only had two. Wow. And um, last year, there were 23 upside plus twos and 23 downside minus twos. Wow. So 46 that are in excess of 2%. 46, and then that was the most since 2009, which we saw, you know, after 08, obviously very big down year. 09 was, you know, a year where we had some positive results coming straight through the financial crisis. Um, Right. And so, that 46 number, the markets aren't open 365 days a year. They're yeah. closed Saturday, Sunday, and holidays. So back out, you know, maybe 115 from that 365, and you're at 250 days. So 46 over 250, 20% of the days last year were that wide of moves. I remember it's it well. Fascinating. So, but like you said, I agree. You have to create an allocation that works best. It's not going to be perfect for every single investor out there. Uh, looking across the portfolio, we want to allocate our retirement accounts differently than maybe we would want to hold our cash or our after-tax taxable accounts. 
uh, and things of that nature. So holding the course is key because, you know, cooler heads prevail, right? Um, so that's just very, very important. We always also want to consider the way that we are investing our clients' money. That's why we have professional money management, um, you know, investing, research, things that go into the portfolios that we manage uh, where quality is number one. You know, we want to make sure that we are using a specific approach to diversifying across the, some of the sectors we've talked about today. Um, so from a standpoint of planning, Dick, is there anything that you would want to, you know, would think that people should be thinking about right now in terms of where we're at? And you mentioned, you know, some rebalancing. That's probably a very good idea. Yeah, I always like to, you know, put the market forecasts aside, at least in the very beginning, um, because although there are a lot of different opinions out there and they tend, admittedly, some of them tend to be wrong. Uh, a lot of them tend to be wrong. So that, to, to me, seems like the one that it's it, it's less known. What is clearly known is your spending habits and your other sources of income. That is black and white. So you can back into, well, how much money am I really going to need to support my lifestyle? You know, that, that liquidity topic we were talking about earlier. Um, and that's such a better place to start because it, it uh, there, there's more black and white fact in there and less opinions on, on where the market is going. And, and from there, then you can, can set up that plan. And you know, it's, everyone wants to earn the highest return without taking risk, but unfortunately it doesn't work like that. And if it did, we, investment managers, money managers probably wouldn't need to be on this earth. But um, you know, if you're, if you're a high spender with not a large nest egg, you need to take risks to try to make up for uh, your spending, or you know, you need to cut back uh, on spending, and maybe we earn six, seven percent in bonds. Focus on preservation at Focus that point. Focus on capital right. preservation. That's where taking that conversation to the table with your advisor is so key, because so many things come out in that discussion that people may not just be thinking about that that much. You know, whether it's family related. Uh, one of the biggest eye openers for the clients that we plan with is taxes. Ellen Becker started a tax division six years ago, and we, we will really only do tax planning for the clients that we do financial planning for. And that has proven to be an excellent place for us to um, look for opportunities, right? Whether it's looking at different ways to save or, you know, give uh, from a giving standpoint as well. So that's a very good point. And, you know, taking all of those things and modeling it in some sort of manner that that works well we use software that helps us identify you know karen always says the red arrow you are here mm -hmm. like at the mall um you know where are we at today how are we invested is it appropriate based on some level of discussion that we're we're working through how are all those other factors as we talked about liquidity needs emergency contingency planning etc factoring into the bigger picture so we really like to spend um, a lot of time on that, get it right, and then obviously one of the most important pieces of financial planning is is making sure that we're continuing to do it in the right way too. Right. It's so, not a set it and forget it. It is ongoing maintenance. Right? Exactly. And review. Yep. So we have a couple minutes left here before we, we wrap up the show. Um, you know, given the new addition in your family and, you know, how busy you've been this summer, um, is, is there anything that comes to mind for you that we haven't talked about today that might be 
just kind of an important thing for people to be thinking about through the rest of the year? No, you know, I think we touched on a lot of great, great topics. And it's interesting. There's not one topic in the last quarter that really jumps out like it did last quarter, like with these regional banks and uh, sentiment seems to be very high. Uh, If anything, in in my shoes, that makes me feel a little bit more nervous uh, about the equity markets in particular. But uh, also, uh, the thing I just want to you know, drive home is that a 5 to 10% correction in stocks should be expected. It should be normal. So let's level set there. Set the expectations that equity That's markets right. could drop 5 to 10%. Um, and always, you know, when in doubt, zoom out. You you look back at a five-year chart and a 10-year chart and be like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, it makes the intraday movements uh, feel a lot less uh, extreme and it really puts things into perspective. So, you know, stay focused on the long term, find that right asset allocation between stocks, bonds, and, and really the third asset class is money market funds. Uh, make sure you have enough liquidity on hand uh, and, and be positive because investors are in a much better spot with the returns on money market funds and in the bond side to really be a complement to stocks. And that's really the big key takeaway. It's not just stocks, you know, Tina, right? There, yep. there is no alternative. <laughs> that I know you have an employee here named Tina, but Tina is dead yes. in the markets. So yeah. I apologize, Tina, but well, you know, we, we have can, alternatives. We can flip the A and the N on the end. There is an alternative, exactly, right? Exactly, so, exactly. Um, so that's great, Dick. Thank you so much. Uh, we've covered a lot today and looking forward to having you back next quarter for you know the third quarter review. Um, and you know, I think uh, you, you pretty much you nailed it when you said expect a 5 to 10% market correction. I think on average we have 5 to 7 of those in any given year. And we're going to have one, you know, like we had last year, about every 10 years in, in, on average. So uh, with that being the case, our guest today was Dick Schiller with Pavlik Investment Advisors. Yeah, he's our fixed income specialist. If there are any questions from today's show, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, I'm Jamie Williams at ellenbecker.com. Uh, you can reach out to our office. Money Sense airs on Saturdays from 2 to 3 p.m. and on Sundays from noon to 1. If you like today's show and want to learn more, visit our website, ellenbecker.com, or call us at 262-691-3200. As always, we hope that we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, we advise, but before we invest, we always listen. Thank you, and have a great day. Thanks, Jamie.